0: Thank you This is The Health Revolution and each week we're going to be interviewing the luminaries in the fields of health and this week our guest is Dr Natasha Campbell McBride and Dr McBride studied neurology and then became a neurosurgeon and now uh, is working in the UK in the field primarily of nutrition and she became Extremely well known because of her work with autism and she's going to explain to us the connection between autism heart disease and so many other problems that afflict modern society and it's worth of course understanding that autism heart disease type 2 diabetes and so many other of the diseases that we now accept as normal weren't happening several years back 50 years back Autism was unheard of. Ninety years back, heart disease was such a rarity, it would have surprised a doctor to have seen it. And uh, today, we're going to uh, look at cures for what are called diseases. But while a disease like, say, tuberculosis, you can look under the microscope and you can actually see it, What we call diseases these days, such as type 2 diabetes and autism, you can't look at them under the microscope. They're a number of symptoms which are given the title of disease. But in actual fact, these sort of modern diseases are really a result of toxicity, nutrient deficiency, uh, and can be remedied. So I'd like to introduce Dr Natasha Camel McBride and uh, Natasha, uh, please do tell us uh, about uh, your background. I'd be particularly interested uh, to learn about your grandmother and exactly what she did. Hello. <laughs>
1: I'm, I'm delighted to talk about my grandmother. She was a person that I had a huge respect for and a huge amount of love for. Um, I spent quite a considerable Uh, number of years in my childhood with my grandparents with my grandmother under her care apparently at the age of 18 months I had a a food poisoning of some sort and I almost died I've lost a lot of weight and I wasn't putting any weight on and had terrible digestive problems and my grandparents took me to the village where they had a small holding they had um, their own cow and they had poultry and they had a garden and she cured me and she cured me with diet with food. And as I grew up, I spent every school holiday there at the village with my grandparents and I observed my grandmother, how she cooked and how she prepared food and how she used food as medicine. And she was some sort of a a village healer. She knew herbs and she knew foods and she was a psychologist in her own way. I saw many people coming to her and confining in her and discussing all sorts of problems in their lives, not just health problems, but family problems and um, other problems. And she always had a good advice for them. And I remember I was very, very impressed just observing my grandmother. And then later on, I went to the medical school and became a doctor myself. And um, I hope to help many people, as my grandmother used to do.
0: And uh, do you practice uh, the use of herbs these days?
1: I'm not a herbalist. I know some herbs, um, which the knowledge I have acquired in my childhood, um, but I haven't studied herbalism. But I do believe that the key and absolute, absolute ground, the foundation of our health is food. Food, glorious food. People underestimate food particularly my colleagues in the mainstream medical profession, they don't see the connection between food and health. While food is the most fundamental and the most important prerequisite for good health or for not so good health, every little bit of food that you eat changes the whole metabolism in your body, has a profound effect on every cell in your body, every organ in your body. So uh, food is an absolute priority when we want to heal any disease. That is why I I went and trained myself in human nutrition. Um, I got trained as a medical doctor, then I specialized in neurology and neurosurgery and worked for many years with neurological patients. Um, And then I went and uh, got a, a postgraduate degree in human nutrition. And now I use nutrition primarily to treat people, to treat chronic disease.
0: And do you feel that uh, there's anybody in the world who really has, uh, through their work, affected more cures for, say, autism than yourself? Because it seems to me that your seminal book, uh, Gut and Psychology Syndrome, which perhaps would have sold better if it was called called How to Cure Autism, uh, has profoundly affected the lives of uh, a huge number of people.
1: I hope so. I'm absolutely convinced, based on my clinical experience, that vast majority of autistic children are born with perfectly normal brains. These are perfectly normal children. But what happens with these children, that at birth they acquire abnormal gut flora from their mother. You see, we all have got bacteria. People know generally that we have some bacteria living inside our digestive system. But many people don't know that 90% 90% of all cells and all genetic material in a human body is our gut flora. That leaves us just as 10%. Our bodies are 10%, just a shell, a habitat for this mass of microbes which live inside our digestive system. And it is a highly organized microbial world. Certain species of microbes have to predominate there in order to keep us healthy, well, and full of energy, full of vitality. And they're called the beneficial microbes. And there are beneficial bacteria there, and beneficial fungi, and beneficial viruses, and beneficial protozoa, and even beneficial worms, as far as we know now. The number of functions that these microbes fulfill for us are so fundamental to human health that if somebody one day sterilized human gut, we probably wouldn't survive at all. They take a huge part in appropriate digestion and absorption of food. They keep us clean on the inside. They talk to our immune system all the time and they keep the immune system well-nourished and properly balanced and properly instructed. They are the major source of data for our immunity to act upon uh, because all the um, major commanding echelons in our immune system, all the generals and admirals and the officers in the immune system, they're on the gut wall and they're constantly communicating with the uh, gut flora. So when the gut flora is abnormal in a person, when the beneficial bacteria are not there, and instead of them, hundreds of thousands of pathogenic disease-causing microbes have grown in the digestive tract. The immune system is misinformed. It's acting upon the wrong data. At the same time, these microbes produce a whole river of toxicity, toxic substances, which absorb through the gut lining, and uh, misinform the immune system and get distributed around the body. Uh, wherever these toxins get, they cause trouble. Uh, what happens in autistic children? These ch- children were born with a normal brain, but their mothers, 100%, almost 100% of mothers of autistic children that I have seen in my uh, clinical work have got abnormal gut flora themselves. Why is that important? Because as far as science knows, Babies inside the mother's womb for nine months are sterile. They have no microbes living on their bodies or inside their bodies. So their digestive system has no flora yet. When the baby goes through the birth canal at the moment of birth, the baby swallows first mouthfuls of bacteria, and that becomes the baby's gut flora. So whatever lives in mom's birth canal in her vagina becomes the baby's gut flora. Where does the vaginal flora come from? It comes from the bowel. So if a woman has got abnormal gut flora, she will have abnormal flora in her birth canal, and that's what she will pass to her baby at the time of birth. So autistic babies, babies who then go on to develop autism, acquire abnormal gut flora from their mothers because their mothers have got abnormal gut flora themselves. I had about a handful of cases in my clinic where the mothers didn't seem to be affected in that area. But then when I looked at the fathers of these children, the fathers were absolutely riddled with abnormal gut flora and conditions which are related to that. And of course, the father shares his bodily flora with the mother on a regular basis. And that's where this abnormal flora came from in the baby. Babies who are born through cesarean section have more opportunistic flora. It comes from the hands of anybody who's looking after the child, from the skin of the mother, from the skin of the carers, from the bottle, from wherever. That is why usually children who are born with a C-section have a different gut flora to the children who were born um, the right way through the the birth canal. But what happens in autism, let's come back to that. These babies acquire abnormal gut flora from their mothers from the start of their lives. And uh, quite quickly, that abnormal gut flora starts digesting the food that comes along in their own way, converting it into a whole host of very toxic, very poisonous chemicals, poisonous substances. At the same time, these abnormal microbes, these pathogens in the gut, damage the integrity of the gut wall itself, making it porous and leaky. So all these toxins flow from the gut into the bloodstream, through the damaged gut wall, distributed around the body and get into the brain of the child. How do children learn? How do babies learn? If you observe the baby, you would know. They listen to everything. They look at everybody and at everything. They have this shameless baby stare. They will stare at you until they figured you out. They'll keep staring at you. They touch everything. They take everything into their mouths. What are they doing? Their sensory organs are collecting information from the environment. Their ears, their eyes, their tactile sensitivity, their taste buds. They're collecting information. And then this information is passed to the brain to be processed. And from this uh, information, the brain learns that this is mommy and this is daddy. I can trust them. That this is a toy. I play with the toy like this. These are the children around me. I copy them and I play with them in a certain way. This is how I copy the language. Uh, this is what I do with food and, and so on. But if the child's brain is clogged with toxicity, this brain cannot process that information from the sensory organs, the sensory information. All this sensory information turns into a noise, into a mush in the child's brain, and from that information, from that noise, the child cannot learn that this is mommy and this is daddy, and that is why autistic children are known to pick up a hand of any stranger on the street and walk away, with mommy running behind and calling his dad. Name. because mommy doesn't mean any more than any other human being around. They don't know what to do with toys, and they don't know what to do with food, and they don't know what, how to copy um, children, how to copy other people around. As a result, they don't develop normal instinctive behaviors. They don't develop language. Um, they just trapped in that noise, in that, in that uh, toxic fog in their brain. This toxicity is coming out of the digestive system of the child. So autism is a digestive disorder. And it's not just autism. We're talking about all learning disabilities in children. If the mixture of toxins coming out of the gut is slightly different, and the constitution of the child is different, and perhaps the amount of toxicity is not as heavy, the child may become hyperactive. The child may develop ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, or attention deficit disorder without hyperactivity. Or the child may become dyslexic or may become dyspraxic or may develop oppositional defined disorder or any other one of those disorders that we are uh, diagnosing our children with nowadays. And the trouble is no, none of these children fit neatly into any diagnostic box because these diagnostic boxes are purely descriptive. They do not encompass themselves what causes the disorder and what to do about it. Uh, So, Majority of these children may have a little bit of autism and a little bit of ADHD and a bit of oppositional defiant and a bit of dyslexia and a bit of dyspraxia and none of it quite fits into any diagnostic box. Because the real disorder in the child is the abnormal gut flora and the toxins that are coming out of the gut and poisoning the child's brain. So the mixture of symptoms in every child can be very, very individual. And unfortunately, these children are in the majority. And these are the children with whom doctors procrastinate. They tell the parents to bring the child for observation six months later, and again six months later, and six months later, and very valuable time is being wasted while the child could have been helped. Because in my experience and the experience of many practitioners who are practicing my protocol now, uh, the younger the child is, the quicker the child recovers and the more fully the child recovers. If we catch a little one with autism or ADHD or any any other uh, of these disorders, um, at the age of two, three, four, up to five, we can pull them out of autism quite quickly and fully. The child can shake the autism off completely without any residual damage. But if the child is older, the older the child becomes, the more they missed out on their development because the longer the child spends in that toxic fog, they are missing out on the development. And other three, four, five-year-old children, typically developing, are not standing still. They're developing quite fast themselves. So for our autistic little boy or a girl to catch up with other children of their age, they have to run, they have to move very, very fast. They not only have to catch up on missed development, but they have to keep up with the rapid pace of development of of, of healthy children uh, around them. So the more the child has missed out, the more difficult it is for them to catch up uh, that is why all the children don't recover fully quite often and also the longer the brain is bombarded by this toxicity coming out of the gut the more chances there are that uh, organic damage will be inflicted upon the brain there will be some atrophy in various areas of the brain and that is quite difficult to heal later on when we do uh, pet scans with a 3 year old autistic um, children we find that they have a perfectly normal brain. But when we do PET scans with 23-year-old autistic individuals, we see a lot of organic damage happening in the brain, a lot of areas of atrophy and damage in there. Because uh, three years is, is a small period of time, and 23 is a long period of time while the toxins have been working on the brain, damaging it, and as a result, organic damage has been inflicted upon the brain. So the younger the child is, the quicker we start the GAPS nutritional protocol I'm talking about, um, the quicker the child recovers. When the level of toxicity builds up too high in the brain, it becomes too damaging. In a proportion of children, the brain develops a safety valve, a cleansing procedure, and that's an epileptic seizure. The brain sends one electric discharge through and destroys the a whole lot of toxins, cleanses itself. That is why it's been known in psychiatry that um, psychotic patients and schizophrenics and other uh, severe psychiatric patients, when they had a seizure, an epileptic seizure, for the first half an hour or so after the seizure ends, the person is normal, lucid. The psychosis goes away and other things go away because the brain has cleaned up. But then the toxins keep coming in, they build up again, in the brain, and the person slides back into their disorder. Um, So epilepsy is basically uh, too much toxicity in the brain. And it doesn't make sense to add another toxin to the equation um, in the child's brain in the form of anti-epileptic medication. What we need to do, we need to subtract toxicity. We need to heal the gut wall, heal and seal the gut wall. We need to clean the digestive system. We need to remove pathogens out of there, and replace them with beneficial flora. Restore the normal, healthy gut flora. And once that is done, once the gut flora becomes normal, and the gut lining gets healed and sealed, that river of toxicity, which used to flow from the gut to the brain, stops. And the brain cleans itself up and starts functioning again. And the child comes out of autism, or comes out of ADHD, or comes out of dyslexia or any, any other disorder, any other mental illness, and starts developing, that's the moment when the child can start learning. And that is the time when we need to start teaching them really intensively so they can catch up on those lost years of development, these children. If the child has not been treated with uh, appropriately uh, with the GAPS nutritional protocol, and I do believe that it is the most appropriate protocol, because the diet in the GAPS stands for gut and psychology syndrome. That's what my book is called, wow. It's my patients who abbreviated it to GAPS because it's a long string of words. Um, GAPS Nutritional Protocol is a program, and the key in there is the GAPS diet, gut and psychology syndrome diet, and the diet is designed to drive out pathogenic flora, replace those pathogens with beneficial flora, and to rebuild the gut wall of the child or the adult to heal and seal that porous, leaking, damaged gut wall. And once that happens, all sorts of things disappear immediately, all sorts of symptoms. The body just cleans itself up, and the person starts coming out of their disorder.
0: So what's the time frame, uh, would you say, for a child who is uh, under five, say, to from the, the start of uh, the GAPS protocol to getting, let's say, a clean bill of health, how long might it take?
1: On average, I recommend to follow the diet for two years. But obviously, this is very individual. Some some children sail through in about a year. Um, they're in a the mainstream school, and they're developing well, and they're learning, and there's hardly any autism noticeable in the child. Other children take longer. But I do recommend that the child, once they um, have the diet has been established, Um, I do recommend that an autistic child follows the diet for for a few years more afterwards. Yes, there may be transgressions; they may cheat occasionally. Uh, When the family goes on holiday, they might eat whatever is available. But when they come back home, they can they go back to the GAPS nutritional uh, protocol, to the diet, because the diet is extremely nourishing. It's very healthy. It prevents all sorts of other problems developing. And it feeds the brain and the immune system very well. It's a really feeding diet. Um, And uh, the child will just flourish. So majority of parents in this family, despite the fact that the child has recovered and is in the mainstream school and doing very well, they still adhere to the protocol until the child is about 14 15 when you can't control the child's diet anymore that's when they start uh, eating all sorts of things themselves children but on average
0: two years and um from the perspective of the would-be mother to avoid autism in the first place uh what sort of recommendations would you be giving that would-be mother
1: in my book there is a part four Um, in the second edition of Gut and Psychology Syndrome book, there is a part four, which is called Preconception, Pregnancy, and the New Baby. And that's where I focus on what should be done prior to getting pregnant, during pregnancy, and when the baby has arrived, to make sure that you have a healthy, robust, wonderful baby without any trouble. We have an epidemic uh, in our world of abnormal gut flora. Before I even talk about the health of the child, I always ask several questions about the health of the parents first, and then even grandparents. Why I do that? Because I see an epidemic developing since the Second World War when the antibiotics were discovered for the first time. We have a growing, deepening epidemic of abnormal gut flora in the population, particularly in the Western world, in the affluent world. Antibiotics, broad-spectrum antibiotics, wipe out the beneficial species of bacteria in the gut. They are very vulnerable to broad-spectrum antibiotics. These bacteria do recover, but different strains of uh, of it take between two weeks to two months to recover. And that's a window of opportunity for all sorts of pathogens, which these bacteria used to control, to get out of control, to overgrow, to occupy new niches in the gut, to just settle in. And uh, once they settle in in there, the recovering healthy flora has a fight on its hands. So from every course of antibiotic to the next course of antibiotic and to the next course of antibiotic, the gut flora becomes more and more unbalanced, more and more abnormal. There's less and less of the good ones in there and more and more of the pathogens until a certain level comes where the balance is skewed towards the pathogens. The pathogens start overtaking. What I see in families in generations that if a grandmother after the Second World War, had a few courses of antibiotics prior to having her daughter, which damaged her gut flora slightly. So she had slightly abnormal gut flora, but nothing too serious to talk about. And she has passed that slightly abnormal gut flora to her daughter at birth because babies acquire gut flora from their moms at the moment of birth. And uh, that generation of uh, young ladies started their life with slightly abnormal gut flora they grew up with a lot of courses of antibiotics because that's the period of time when antibiotics were and still are prescribed for every cough and sneeze. Unfortunately, so children, you know, they, they, they just take lots of antibiotics nowadays for every infection. So every course she had quite a few courses of antibiotics in her youth, um, which damaged her gut flora further. Add to that uh, processed foods which came on force onto the market, junk diet, and junk diet, processed carbohydrates, feed pathogens in the gut and allow them to proliferate exclusively. And then at the age of 15, 16, uh, generations of our young ladies are put on contraceptive pill. Contraceptive pill has a devastating effect on the gut flora. And our young women take the contraceptives for quite a few years before they're ready to start their family. So by the time our young ladies are ready to start their family, to have their first pregnancy, their first child, They have quite seriously abnormal gut flora, and that's what they are passing to their babies. And it's this epidemic of abnormalities in the gut flora being passed through generations of women that is underlying the epidemics of autism and ADHD and dyslexia and dyspraxia and childhood epilepsy and diabetes type 1 and adulthood psychiatric disorders and all sorts of other health problems that are happening in the world now. And the situation is getting worse with every generation of young ladies who are having children now. Every year, if you take it every year, every year we have uh, so many young ladies having babies, and their gut flora is more abnormal than in the generation of women in the previous few years. And it's getting deeper and worse. When my son was diagnosed with autism, we were diagnosing one child in 150 autistic About 10 years prior to that, it was one child in 10,000 with autism in the Western world. So there was a 40-fold increase in those years in uh, newly diagnosed cases of autism. That was 20 years ago. Today, we're diagnosing one child in 50 in the Western world, in the States, in in England, in English-speaking world in particular. One child in 50. So where this epidemic is going to lead us and where it's going to end, nobody knows. I wouldn't be surprised that in another 10, 15 years we'll be diagnosing one child in three, one child in five with autism. And it is a devastating disorder. It takes a whole family out of the society pretty much because the whole family has to look after this individual unless they treat it appropriately in the first few years of life. And uh, um, autistic individuals live a normal lifespan. So the family has to look after them until they're gone and then somebody else has to pick up. Um, and look after these severely uh, mentally disabled individuals. So it is a very, very serious situation, and we really have to do something about it. But the diagnosis of autism, as I say, is purely descriptive. Our mainstream medicine just takes a bunch of symptoms, places them into one box and calls that box autism. Then takes another bunch of symptoms, places them into another box, and calls that box schizophrenia or ADHD or something else. So the label itself, the diagnosis itself, is meaningless, really, because it doesn't give us any idea of what causes the disorder and what to do about it. The real cause, the real disorder that is underlying all these epidemics is gaps. I'm absolutely convinced of it. Gut and psychology syndrome, the epidemic of abnormal gut flora in our population. There are many factors in our modern world that we've created in our environment that are damaging our gut flora, Antibiotics are number one, contraceptive pill. Any prescriptive medication, any long-term prescription medication that you get a um, a repeat prescription for will damage the gut flora, will alter the balance in the gut. Painkillers, steroids, any other medication that people take. And trouble is we live in in a very medicated society. People think of nothing to keep taking uh, medication on a daily basis and think that that's all. has a a, a major impact on that. Bottle-fed babies develop completely different gut flora from breast-fed babies, and that predisposes bottle-fed babies to allergies and eczema and asthma and learning disabilities. The the, the statistics in that population is higher for all of these disorders because they acquire... uh, um, Breastfeeding is essential for the child to develop more or less normal gut flora, to feed the normal gut flora in there. Um, smoking and uh, abuse of alcohol and electromagnetic pollution have an effect on the gut flora. But this all of these environmental factors that we have created, they're milder. None of them is, are as severe uh, in terms of damaging effect on the gut flora as antibiotics are. And uh, we have a cumulative effect on them. They accumulate. Um, they have a cumulative effect.
0: Yes, quite. And uh, for the would-be mother... Um, would uh, a good quality probiotic drastically cut the risks of autism if they just did that and nothing else?
1: Probiotic, yes, that's very helpful. But if you keep eating the wrong food, if you keep living on junk food, um, no pill in the world is going to help you. Food is the key. Mother Nature designed our bodies to get our nutrition from food, not from pills. So it's essential for a a would-be mother to eat properly. And there are many ideas about what good diet is and what not good diet is. Please read my book because this is a a very big subject. It is very important for a pregnant woman to supply her body with all the necessary nutrients to build a proper healthy body for her child. And the trouble is also that many women nowadays, um, prior to having their children, Accumulated a lot of toxins in their bodies. Women in particular are targeted by chemical industry. It is women who wear makeup. It is women who dye their hair. It is women who um, use a lot of personal care products. And all of these things absorb through the skin quite effectively and accumulate in our bodies. Our chemical industry has generated uh, best part of 2,000 new chemicals which didn't exist on this planet before. So our human... Bodies don't really have solid mechanisms to eliminate them, to remove them. So women just build all this up in their their bodies. They accumulate all this. It sounds cruel, it sounds unfair, but the way a human body is designed, a woman's body uses pregnancy as a chance to clean up by dumping toxins into the fetus. Research shows that when we expose a pregnant animal to a toxic chemical, It largely accumulates in the fetus. The fetus absorbs it all. That is why babies babies spend nine months inside a a mother's tummy and is a target for all this toxicity to be dumped into. That is why our babies are born with a toxic load. And unfortunately, the more the gut flora in a woman is abnormal, the higher the toxic load her baby is born with. Because it is our gut that is a major source of toxicity. In the body, there's a river of toxins coming out of there. And if a woman also willingly put toxins onto her skin and into her body and also has got perhaps amalgams in her teeth, leaching mercury and um, had other chemical exposures, that is why uh, women nowadays have a lot of uh, miscarriages before they're ready to produce a viable baby. Because if an amount of toxicity that's accumulated in her body enough to kill the fetus, it will do so, and she will miscarry. And many women nowadays will have one, two, three miscarriages prior to um, being able to produce a baby that can live. So her, baby, her, her body cleans up on those few miscarriages, and then she can produce a viable baby. If a woman's body wasn't so toxic um, to kill the, the fetus, but enough to damage the constitution of the child, so the child is born with a large toxic load, then the child may develop a learning disability or diabetes type one or asthma or allergy or something else, something else um, which perhaps not related to the brain but in the rest of the body. Um, That is why in many families with autistic children, it is the first child that's autistic. The following siblings are okay. They don't have a learning disability. And many parents ask me these questions, uh, why? Why is the first one? Because the mother's body cleaned up on the first one and for the following children, her body was cleaner. That is why it happened that way. Um, It is rarer to have uh, a following child autistic, first few children healthy uh, or first child healthy, and then uh, a second or a third one uh, autistic. And, And that is usually in every case is related to something happening between those two pregnancies that prior to the first pregnancy, the woman was more or less healthy, but after the first pregnancy, she had either an infection where she had a lot of antibiotics, that's the typical situation, or some other exposure, which accumulated toxins in her body and damaged her gut flora. And that is why the second or a third child um, developed autism.
0: So okay. for the um, uh, would-be mother, uh, if she's going to improve her diet but wanted to detox, what, what do you recommend as the the principal ways
1: to detox? To detox. There is a whole chapter in my book which is called detoxification. The first thing to do is to remove toxic exposure. Remove all personal care products out of your life and use only natural, biodegradable personal care products. There There is now a whole industry that is developing. There are many good companies around who are producing natural shampoos and natural Um, shower gels and natural makeup and, and other natural products so it is important to switch to those we thought for a long time that skin was a barrier now we know better it's no barrier at all it absorbs everything we put onto it and in seconds as soon as you put a deodorant under your armpit you can taste it in your mouth because the toxins from that deodorant already in your bloodstream and are already in your saliva that is why you can test taste it And they also bypass the test of the liver because if you swallow any toxic substance, before it finishes up in your bloodstream, it has to go through the liver and the liver will neutralize the bulk of it. It will protect you from it. But when we apply it to the skin, it absorbs directly into your bloodstream without uh, going through the test of of the liver. So that's a very important thing to do. Another thing is to look at what other exposures to toxicity she might have in her life and remove that exposures. Whether it's in your house, whether it's at work, uh, whether it's uh, anywhere else. And, of course, the diet. That is the most important thing. Uh, a woman, I, I do recommend that um, women who have abnormalities in their gut flora, and that will manifest with certain health problems, need to follow the gaps nutritional protocol prior to conception. That will restore your gut flora and will heal and seal your gut and prepare you for pregnancy, and make your pregnancy far more healthy. If you are already pregnant, uh, and you've just discovered the whole concept, and and you're very worried about it, still go on a full GAPS diet, follow the GAPS nutritional protocol, and uh, um, do your best. Just do your best, basically. Um, We have some active ways of detoxifying the body, and that is having daily baths with various detoxifying substances, As our skin is no barrier, it absorbs things. It also releases toxins out. So when you sit in a bath, and uh, the baths that I recommend are alternating. One evening it's with Epsom salt, next evening with sea salt, evening after with bicarbonate of soda, then uh, next night with cider vinegar, and seaweed powder is also very good. When you sit in the water with about a cup of any of these substances, Toxins will be released through the skin into the bath water and certain nutrients from the water will absorb through the skin and contribute um, to the nutritional status of the body and to the detoxification of the whole system. It's very important for a woman to make sure that during pregnancy and prior to that, she deals with any dental issues. No amalgams, nothing toxic. And it's generally speaking, I do recommend to work with a holistic dentist because holistic Dentists are a completely different group of uh, dentists from the mainstream dentists. They have a very different training. They know how to remove amalgams safely without releasing mercury into the body. And they would make sure that the materials that they put into your teeth are safe for you, for your body, that there is no special reaction or allergy to those materials. Uh, So they will not introduce anything into your mouth, into your body that can cause havoc in your body. Um, while um, our mainstream uh, dentistry is not trained really to do that. They're just trained to patch up your teeth. And a lot of substances that the dentistry is using are very toxic. And trouble is that for, for many years, um, our pregnant women were um, sent to dentists and, and amalgams were put into, your te- into their teeth. So a lot of this autism epidemic and uh, Because all amalgam fillings leach mercury all the time for many, many years until, until you remove it. It never stops uh, leaching mercury into your system. You swallow it, and the mercury t- targets the fetus. And trouble is with toxic metals such as mercury and lead and aluminium and uh, arsenic is that they are fat-soluble, which means they target high-fat tissues in the body. They absorb into the high-fat tissues. So they will absorb into the brain of the fetus and into the bone marrow and into the immune system, which are high fat organs. So the baby will be born already with a high level of mercury in the brain. And that will lay the ground for all sorts of disorders, for all sorts of problems in the child.
0: And of course, it may surprise a number of people to hear you say that the brain is made of fat, that so many parts of the body are made of fat, because of course, the dogma... Uh, that science has given us for the last 40 or 50 years is to eat low-fat and low cholesterol. And as we know, uh, your brain particularly is made of fat and cholesterol. And uh, many people are still following the low-fat advice and uh, are harming themselves, their hearts, their entire body, aren't they?
1: Absolutely. The whole idea comes from a hypothesis That is called the Diet-Heart Hypothesis, which was proposed in 1953. And uh, since then, many years have passed. And our science, a lot of science has been conducted to prove this hypothesis. And what the science actually has proven, that the hypothesis is entirely and completely wrong. That dietary fats, particularly animal fats and cholesterol, have nothing to do with heart disease and cancer. In fact, they prevent them. But trouble is that while the science was busy proving this hypothesis to be wrong, a huge and very powerful commercial and political machine got built based on this hypothesis. The pharmaceutical industry is making billions on this hypothesis. The food industry is making billions. The medical industry is making billions. The governments are making billions. And all these powers are not prepared to stop. They're not prepared to suddenly stand back and say we've been wrong for all these years. And we're going to stop all this um, flow of profits and whatever else. So, the more the science is coming up with the proof that this hypothesis is wrong, the more aggressive the propaganda becomes coming uh, at the population from the mainstream for low fat, um, for low fat foods and low fat this and that and the other, and, and, and for medication. Human brain is largely made out of cholesterol and made out of fats. And the kind of fats the human brain is made of, the bulk of it, are the fats similar to fats in animals. Lamb fat, and beef fat, and butter, and cream, and goose fat, and duck fat, and chicken fat. Not the vegetable oils. Talking about science, even from the beginning of production of vegetable oils, from the 1800s, the end of 1800s, scientific studies were accumulating that vegetable oils are poisonous, that they cause infertility and they cause mental illness and they cause heart disease and they cause cancer and they cause every other malady under the sun, that they are something that nobody should be eating. And yet our mainstream propaganda that is pouring on the population from TV and everywhere else, that vegetable oils are healthy and that we should all cook on vegetable oils and indeed all our processed foods coming from the food industry, are are cooked on vegetable oils. Nobody should be eating them. Those great big bottles which are sold in supermarkets of oils, nobody should be buying them and nobody should be eating them. Cooking should be done the traditional way, the way our grandmothers and great-grandmothers used to cook on lamb fat, on tallow, on beef fat, on pork fat, on goose fat and on duck fat. These fats are healthy. They're very good for your heart. They're very good for your brain. And uh, they keep well and they don't get destroyed by heat, while vegetable oils made out of polyunsaturated fatty acids, which are very vulnerable to heat, to oxygen, to uh, pressure. And that's exactly what we use in our big factories when we extract these oils from the plant matter. Heat is applied and pressure is applied, and solvents and various chemicals are applied. So the resulting oil which comes out of those plants is already chemically changed and mutilated and damaged And it comes into the body like a villain as a pollution. The body has to work very hard to clean those damaged and mutilated polyunsaturated fats from it. It can't use them. And then we cook on them and fry on them and damage them even further, making them even more damaging. While animal fats are stable, we can heat them. You can use them and reuse them. They don't get damaged to any degree. And they're very, very healthy. when it comes to the brain and to the bone marrow and to the immune system and our endocrine glands and many other organs, they are very hungry for fats. They're extremely high-fat organs. And there is a wonderful process in the human body, which is called cell regeneration process. Uh, All cells in our body only live a short life. They get worn out, they get too old, the body gets rid of them, shuts them off and replaces them with newly born baby cells. Every organ, every tissue in the body constantly renews itself that way. Shedding off old cells, replacing them with newly born. Every three months you have a new liver. All your liver cells have died out and have been shed off and replaced by newly born um, cells. The same happens in the brain. The brain has a very active cell regeneration process going on, and the gut lining also does. That is why we have a real chance to heal and seal it because of that wonderful process of cell regeneration. But in order for the body to give birth to billions of those new baby cells to feed this process, it needs building materials. And our cells in the body are pretty much 50% protein and 50% fat. All of them. That's what our bodies are made from. So where do these building materials have to come from? High-quality protein comes from animal foods from meat, fish, eggs, and milk. And the proper fat for the human physiology comes again from meat, fish, eggs, and fat, and and, and, and dairy, butter. So these are the most appropriate fats and proteins for the human body. These are the building foods for our bodies. And we simply cannot live without them. They're essential for us. That is why we have epidemics of mental illness and learning disabilities, because people's brains are starving because of the diet that people are on. And uh, we have epidemics of leukemia and other problems with blood because the the bone marrow is is starving in in these patients. The bone marrow is a very high fat organ, and the turnover of cells in there is extremely rapid, extremely fast. And also because it's such a high fat organ, it is a target for fat-soluble toxins, for mercury and for lead and for aluminium and for petrochemicals and other toxins that we filled our environment with. That is why we have all these all these epidemics, and the same with the immune system. Immunity is has a very rapid cell regeneration processes going on in there. And another very uh, important uh, molecule in the body is cholesterol. We cannot live without cholesterol. It is a, it is a, a, an absolutely essential element in the body. It is so essential that the body is constantly manufactures it. Many people will be surprised to know that. More than 85% of all cholesterol floating in your blood doesn't come from food. It is manufactured by your own liver. Our liver is responsible for maintaining the blood levels of cholesterol. You can live on a completely cholesterol-free diet, not eat any drop of cholesterol whatsoever. You will still have loads of cholesterol in your blood because the less cholesterol you eat, the harder your liver has to work to manufacture it. The more good quality cholesterol you eat, if you have butter and eggs for breakfast, then your liver can relax a little bit and not work so hard to manufacture. Because your body will have the level of cholesterol it needs in your blood. Because cholesterol is involved in a myriad of functions in your body, none of which can work without that cholesterol in it. All your steroid hormones in the body are made out of cholesterol. Your adrenal hormones, your sex hormones, and many other hormones in the body. If you're not If you don't want to be able to cope with stress, then live on a low-cholesterol diet. And indeed, people who are on a low-cholesterol diet don't cope very well with stress. They're very prone to flying off the handle and having nervous breakdowns because their adrenals cannot produce enough hormones to deal with stress in their lives. Any healing in the body, any wound, any scratch, anything in the body that we have, um, any damage, In order to heal and repair it, we need large amounts of cholesterol and large amounts of saturated fat, saturated animal fat. Because the cell membranes in every cell of our body, the wall of the cell, the little walls of the organelles inside the cell and other elements of the cell are made largely out of cholesterol and saturated fat. They're very important structural Elements of our cell membranes. And because a large part of the cell are membranes, a large part of our bodies are those membranes, so to a large degree our bodies are made out of saturated fats and out of cholesterol. These are structural elements. So in order for the body to heal any damage, any scratch, any wound, the body has to manufacture baby cells, doesn't it? To replace all those damaged cells that have been damaged and killed by the the damaging um, element, whatever's inflicted the damage. And in order for the body to give birth to all those tiny cells, the body has to build membranes. And if those membranes, 40% of them are cholesterol and 40% of them are saturated fatty acid, the body needs large amounts of that. So any damage in the body, any wound, any free radical damage or any other kind of uh, damage that uh, you might have inflicted upon yourself The site of that damage will immediately send a command, a signal to the liver. I need lots of cholesterol. I need lots of saturated fat, lots of triglycerides. So the liver gets into gear, starts manufacturing these molecules in large amounts and sending them to the site of damage to repair it. Because cholesterol and triglycerides are fatty molecules, they cannot travel in the water-based blood. Our blood is water-based. They have to be packaged in order to travel in the blood. So the liver packages them into lipoproteins, little shuttles, little space shuttles. Lipoproteins. And uh, these, these are the uh, LDLs, low-density low lipoproteins, that transport the cholesterol from the liver to the site of the damage. Once the cholesterol has done its good work, at the site of the damage, repaired it, it gets damaged itself as a result, then the liver sends another shuttle to pick it up and transport it back to the liver to be recycled, to be dealt with. And that shuttle is called HDL, high density lipoprotein. Our science and it's, uh, um, our, our, our medicine and it's not, 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 not so bright a moment, call that, that lipoprotein as a good cholesterol because cholesterol molecule travels from the site of the damage back to the liver but the one that transports from from the liver to the site of the damage, the bad cholesterol, LDL. It's the same as calling the uh, ambulance, which is uh, traveling from the base to the patient, the bad ambulance, and the one that's traveling back to the base from the patient, the good ambulance. (laughs) Now the science has realized just how foolish all that is and how silly all that is, and more evidence has come in. So now they've uh, discovered that actually most of that Cholesterol that we used to call the bad LDL cholesterol is actually good. So now we're being told that we need to call that fraction of it the good-bad cholesterol. And the rest of it, the tiny fraction, the bad-bad cholesterol. (laughs) How how confused the whole whole issue is. But the fact is that cholesterol is an essential molecule in the body. We cannot heal anything in the body without cholesterol. We can't produce um, our steroid hormones. We can't produce vitamin D. Without cholesterol, because vitamin D is produced from cholesterol. It's made from it, from cholesterol. Our immune system cannot live without cholesterol. People on a low cholesterol diet or people whose livers, for whatever reason, too toxic livers or, or blocked with something else, is unable to manufacture cholesterol. Those are the people whose immunity just collapses and whose brains cannot function. Um, Dr. Pfeiffer in the States um, has, has uh, researched, uh, spent 20 years researching inmates of major uh, USA prisons. And he found that 80% of violent offenders, people who committed violent crimes, all had low cholesterol levels in their blood because their livers were unable to produce it. These people were too toxic or had nutritional deficiencies So that biochemical pathway that the liver uses for manufacturing cholesterol in these people was not functioning. So they were not able to produce cholesterol. And the first thing that happens, the immunity collapses in the person. They become prone to all sorts of infections. They cannot produce enough steroid hormones, so they can't cope with stress. These people are the ones who are very irritable and fly off the handle and irrational and can react in a violent way to um, perfectly ordinary stimuli. In life, but most importantly, their brains start starving because brain is a very hungry organ, and it is a very high cholesterol organ and high saturated fat organ. And if it doesn't receive its large dose of cholesterol every single day, it can't function properly. It can't deal with uh, daily stresses and daily uh, situations. So the person becomes depressed. or The person starts having panic attacks or. Um, the memory goes in the person, and uh, then more serious things develop, more serious problems develop in the person. So the last thing we want to do with is mess about with the blood levels of cholesterol in our bodies. Whatever your blood level of cholesterol is, is right for you. That is why I don't recommend you test for it, because testing only creates stress and pressure from the medical industry to to do something about it. Don't even test for it. Trust your body. If your body has a certain level of cholesterol, it knows what it's doing. It needs it. You might have had a a dental treatment recently. A lot of damage was done to your gums, to your jaws. Need, Need healing. So your blood cholesterol will go high because your liver will be sending it to your gums, to your teeth to repair the damage. If you had surgery, in every case, blood cholesterol goes through the roof in a patient after surgery. Because tissues have been cut, blood vessels have been damaged, they need to be repaired. So, of course, the liver will be working hard to manufacture lots of cholesterol and send it to the site of the damage to repair. So, of course, that will happen. If you are uh, uh, having a particularly stressful period of life um, at work or with family or whatever, a lot of damage will be going on in your body. Stress is very damaging, very destructive. So, your blood levels of cholesterol will be high. If you are in the middle of the winter and your levels of vitamin D are low, that's a sunshine vitamin. The major source of it is sunshine for us, sunlight. We need to sunbathe in order to get it. Um, The immune system will not be functioning very well. So a lot of microbes in the body, dormant microbes, viruses will get active in the body. They will cause a lot of damage. So, of course, your blood cholesterol will go high again because the liver will have to keep manufacturing it and sending it to those sites of damage or those tissues that were damaged by the virus or bacteria or something else, an infectious agent. So every time, at every moment, your body knows what it's doing. Whatever level of cholesterol it's maintaining in your blood, it knows what it's doing, and that's the right level of cholesterol for you. That is why it is impossible to change your blood cholesterol with diet I say uh, large studies, like large-scale studies all over the world, have demonstrated that diet limiting cholesterol intake in the diet has no effect on blood cholesterol whatsoever. You can live on a completely cholesterol-devoid diet, and yet you will have plenty of cholesterol in your bloodstream because the major, major source of it is the liver, the activity of your liver. The only way to reduce cholesterol in your blood is through drugs, because drugs and they call statins. That's a group of drugs uh, or cholesterol pill, statins. They impair production of cholesterol in the liver. They 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 stump your liver. They don't allow it to produce cholesterol, and that is the only way that you can reduce the blood levels of your cholesterol. And that's a very dangerous thing to do to yourself. Extremely damaging thing. Extremely misguided. Because your brain will be starving. Whatever wounds and damages you have in your body are not going to be repaired without cholesterol. You start accumulating damage. You start aging. And you start developing disease. And you can develop cancer in your body. In fact, low levels of cholesterol, people who have low levels of cholesterol because their liver is not working properly and cannot produce cholesterol, are prone to cancer. They have some, some... uh, unbelievable statistic like 18 times higher levels of cancer than people who have high level of cholesterol, in whom livers are working properly and can produce cholesterol. So you're laying ground for development of cancer and development of chronic disease if you're reducing the level of cholesterol in your blood. And you can't produce adrenal hormones, and you can't produce sex hormones, and uh, uh, your immune system is starving, and your bone marrow is starving. Whatever organs need cholesterol will be starving. And they will not be able to function properly, and you will not be able to develop um, vitamin D in your skin. That's a very important fat-soluble vitamin that we can't live without. Um, and the major source of it is for us is sunbathing. That's another phobia that has been developed in our society: the sun phobia. We live in a society that's got fat phobia and, and sun phobia and neither of them are based on any science. There is no connection between sunlight exposure and skin cancer whatsoever that has been proven. It's a, it's another myth that has been propagated by commercial interests, companies who produce all these lotions and potions to um, screen the sun, and the uh, majority of them have got ingredients in the, in those lotions and potions which have been proven to cause skin cancer. They have been proven to cause it. And there are correlations between the use of these creams and the epidemics of skin cancer in certain areas of the world. And the two lines just go in parallel together. So that's, uh, 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 we just moved away. But coming back to the heart disease, what happens in heart disease? We have a lot of whatever damaging elements get into your body, whether it's an infection or a toxic chemical, molecules of mercury or, or something else, or free radicals or whatever else. Sooner or later, they'll finish up in your bloodstream because your bloodstream is your motorway system, your road system in, in, in the body. They finish up in there. And what they do, they inflict a wound inside your artery. They would attack the lining of your artery and get a uh, uh, damage uh, an area there, inflict a wound in there. So what does the body do immediately when that happens? It launches, the first thing that happens, the immune system comes there immediately and launches inflammation, Inflammation is a process that kills the bug that caused the damage, whether it was a virus or a bacterium or another infectious agent, or it will absorb and remove the toxin that might have caused that wound, or free radicals or whatever else, whatever was the damaging element that inflicted the wound. That's what inflammation will do. Once it's done its job, once it's killed the enemy and cleaned up the the battlefield, The second process is supposed to come in and replace the inflammation, and that is called the repair process in the body. Inflammation and repair are the two partners that work together in dealing with any damage in our human bodies. Repair. What does the repair do? The repair produces new baby cells and new collagen fibers and uh, other, other materials to soothe and to heal the wound. And if these two processes are allowed to function properly and to move on properly, then we all sustain a lot of damage in our blood vessels all the time on a daily uh, uh, basis. But as long as these two processes are working properly, we don't even need to know about it because the body will launch inflammation, clean up the site, kill the enemy, and then launch repair and heal that. Repair repair that area, And that's going on all the time. Trouble is that we, uh, human beings, have created a very unnatural situation in our world, and that is we've changed our diet quite radically in the last 50, 60 years. The diet of uh, people in the Western world has changed dramatically. We stopped eating a lot of natural foods, we stopped cooking at large, and we started eating large amounts of processed carbohydrates based on sugar, flour, and other processed grains, basically, starchy, processed carbohydrates. All your breakfast cereals, all your snacks, all your um, soft drinks full of sugar, and anything else that contains sweets and chocolate bars and and, uh, other things, uh, they're all processed carbohydrates. What these processed carbohydrates do, they raise the blood sugar level very rapidly, constantly, And that is a very dangerous situation in the body. The blood sugar is something that has to be kept within certain very strict limits. Too high, too low can kill. That is why the body has very solid mechanisms for keeping your blood sugar at a certain level. And one of those mechanisms is production of a hormone called insulin. Your pancreas produces insulin. So when you keep eating, if you had breakfast cereals for breakfast, and then you had a chocolate bar, and then you had a white bread sandwich at lunch and then you had another chocolate bar and you had some soft drinks on the way um, and you had some uh, sweets perhaps or something else processed or crisps or something like that your blood sugar level is going high all the time because you're consuming processed carbohydrates all the time and that's a very very damaging dangerous situation in the body so what does It starts producing large amounts of insulin to deal with all that blood sugar, to reduce it, to keep it within the normal level. So you finish up with having too much insulin all the time in your bloodstream. Day and night you walk about with very high levels of insulin in your bloodstream. And insulin is a master pro-inflammatory hormone in the body. Whatever inflammation anywhere in your body begins, it just can't stop if you've got high levels of insulin. It will perpetuate and perpetuate and perpetuate. So now, if we have that wound inflicted inside your artery, and inflammation gets launched to kill the enemy and clear the site, then this inflammation is supposed to stop and withdraw in order for the repair to come in and start repairing that site. But if you've got high levels of insulin in your bloodstream because of your diet, then the inflammation can't stop. The repair begins, it starts building new cells and new collagen fibers and other tissues in there. But inflammation is still active, it keeps tearing those things apart. It keeps tearing it and tearing, tearing apart. And as a result, there is a a competition, a battle between the inflammation and the repair processes right there at the site of that damage. And that builds up a lot of debris in there and the wound never heals, in fact it gets deeper because of the inflammation. And that's your atherosclerotic plaque that builds inside your artery. It is a never healing ulcer. It isn't a lump of cholesterol that's stuck inside you or a lump of fat as as, uh, the common media portrays it. It is a never healing ulcer inside your artery because the inflammation would not calm down and would not go away. All the repair uh, that the body tries to, uh, to accomplish in that area just gets torn apart by the inflammation again. And that's how the atherosclerotic plaque builds. And that situation can continue for quite a few years depending on who's winning, the repair or the inflammation. If you change your diet and you stop eating processed carbohydrates, the inflammation will stop and go away. And then the repair mechanism will repair that area and the plaque will be gone. You will never develop any problem in there. That little wound will be gone. But if you continue eating processed carbohydrates, insulin's high in your body. Inflammation can't subside; it's still active, and it wins over the repair. Then it takes that plaque to its third stage, when it becomes very large. It becomes a stay unstable, and it bursts. And that's when you get a heart attack or a stroke, or wherever this blood vessel is, that this situation happens in the peripheral. Um, vascular disease, it will be a disaster. Wherever it happens, whether it's happening in your brain, in your heart, or anywhere else in your body, it will be a disaster. So the real cause of heart disease are your breakfast cereals and your chocolate bars and your soft drinks and your white bread sandwiches and your pasta and all other um, processed carbohydrates that people live on, naturally. That is the real cause of heart disease epidemic. And... uh, High levels of insulin create a pro-inflammatory environment in the body where the body is constantly ready to launch inflammation and can't stop inflammation. And now our science is coming up with facts that cancer is a pro-inflammatory disorder, but it's inflammation. An autoimmune disease and every other degenerative disease is based on this inflammation. So eating processed carbohydrates is laying the ground for any kind of chronic disease that our modern uh, world is suffering from. The heart disease and the cancer and the strokes and the rheumatoid arthritis and the multiple sclerosis and the diabetes and Alzheimer's and mental illness and anything you like. It is a very dangerous situation to maintain um, in your body. So that spoonful of sugar that helps the medicine go down <laughs> or just create a situation where you need more and more medicine. So that is the real cause of heart disease. Cholesterol is there at the site of the damage inside your artery because it is a major element of repair. It has to be there in order to repair that wound. And trouble is if the inflammation is still active at that site, it keeps destroying it. It doesn't allow it to repair. So as a result, the molecules of cholesterol get destroyed, mutilated by inflammation, and they just get uh, become a part of that debris that builds up inside that never-healing ulcer inside your artery. That's why it's in the first place. It's a building material that's been destroyed instead of being used appropriately. It's just a pile of rubble in there. So, um, the, you know, the fact that you were found at the site of the crime doesn't mean that you committed that crime, is it? So, oh. the fact that the cholesterol is found at the site of this um, atherosclerotic plaque and saturated fats doesn't mean that they committed the crime. In fact, they were there trying to prevent it and repair the damage and they go damage themselves in the process.
0: But well, clearly the, the body always knows what it's doing. Doctors seem to have this idea in many cases that the body goes wrong, uh, but clearly the body just adapts to whatever the situation is that it has to cope with, and it seems that bodies increasingly are having to cope with situations where m- vitamins and minerals are so devoid from the food that... Uh, Cholesterol seems to particularly form, I've noticed, where magnesium deficiencies, vitamin C deficiencies, and vitamin B deficiencies, particularly niacin, vitamin B3, are present. Have you, Would you concur with that?
1: Absolutely. People are eating diets which are devoid of nutrition. And uh, the major source of B vitamins for us is our own gut flora. Every B vitamin is produced, manufactured by the gut flora. And uh, no matter what we do when a person is deficient in B vitamins, we can give them supplements, we can make them eat liver every day. Liver is the richest source of B vitamins, um, dietary source. They still stay pale and pasty. They're still deficient in B vitamins uh, until we restore their gut flora. That is the major, major source of B vitamins in the body. Very, very important. Magnesium deficiency is caused by sugar consumption. It's very simple, as simple as that. Because in order for the body to process one molecule of sugar, it needs 56 molecules of magnesium. Very large amount of magnesium. Where's that magnesium going to come from? From your bones, from your brain, from your blood vessels, from your muscles. So every spoonful of sugar, every bit of processed carbohydrate that you consume, every bottle of soft drink that you consume will deprive you of magnesium. When a person is deficient in magnesium, in adults, it usually manifests as high blood pressure immediately, because for the blood vessels, in order to contract, they need calcium, in order to react, they need to relax, they need magnesium. And because we all have plenty of calcium, we consume dairy and we consume other foods which have calcium, but if we eat sugar, which binds all our magnesium, so we're magnesium deficient, our blood vessels contract, but they can't relax. Afterwards, you constantly have a, a high tone, high constriction in there, and that puts drives your blood pressure up. Our epidemic of hypertension, high blood pressure, is caused by consumption of sugar and processed carbohydrates in the society. Because this is the major, major part of our modern diet. Nowadays, if a child is deficient in magnesium because the child is eating sweets and eating breakfast cereals and other processed carbohydrates The child becomes hyperactive and irrational. The child gets trapped in a um, so-called blood sugar roller coaster When the blood sugar goes up and down up and down all day long, so when the child is up the child will be manic and noisy and unstoppable Then it drops down the child becomes irrational Um, uh, clingy and crying and pale and sweaty and and, and unwell. And if the child has another dose of sugar at that moment, um, they go back up. And it goes all day long. And the parents have to deal with all the behaviors and the teachers have to deal with all the behaviors that accompany this blood sugar rollercoaster in the child. And magnesium deficiency always causes uh, inability to learn, inability to focus, answering your pants can't uh, relax, can't sit still, the child fidgety, and just can't focus on anything and can't learn anything and can't behave properly. So that's what a spoonful of sugar does.
0: And uh, for the parents whose children, for instance, insist on eating starchy carbohydrates, uh, pasta and pizza and uh, the breakfast cereals and the toast and so on, um, have you got any particularly good suggestions as to what The parents should be offering their children instead when they want something sweet. What what should the parents be offering? Do you think?
1: Well fruit is sweet. Dried fruit is sweet. It's a good snack dried fruit and honey, honey and a child who has got a blood sugar roller coaster and the parents will recognize it when the child swings from manic, unruly, uncontrollable behavior when they're running around there, just nothing seems to be able to stop the child. And then the child collapse, collapses and becomes clammy and tired and uh, clingy and uh, crying uh, for, for no particular reason um, and just, just, you know, un- inconsolable. And then has something sugary and up it goes again into a ch- in manic state. For this kind of children and adults, what I recommend you do, make uh, a jar of butter-honey mixture. What these children need is fat. It is the fat that keeps our blood sugar level, at a stable level to stop this blood sugar roller coaster. And blood sugar roller coaster also comes with craving for sweet things. These are the people who crave sugar and crave chocolate and crave any other snacky, uh, sugary things like that. Uh, they just can't help themselves. The craving can be very, very overwhelming, very strong. So what I recommend you do, Soften a block of butter, good quality butter, unsalted at the room temperature, and then add enough honey to uh, to your taste, mix it with a fork, make a mixture, put it in a glass jar, and take that jar with you everywhere you go, all day long. And every 20 minutes or so, have a couple of tablespoons of this, this mixture. If the person can't eat butter, make a coconut oil, honey mixture. You can buy coconut oil, good quality coconut oil, and add a bit of honey to it. And that mixture, eating it every 15, 20 minutes all throughout the day, will keep the blood sugar level, at a good level, and will allow you to overcome cravings for sugar and chocolate, and other processed carbohydrates, and will stop that blood sugar roller coaster. If a person is eating bread and if a person is eating any uh, pizza or anything made out of flour, it is essential to have these things with a large amount of fat. And that is what traditional people, traditionally in the society, was always done. You always had a large amount of butter with it, or pork fat, or pork dripping, or bacon, or or, or something else like that. Because when a piece of bread digests, it digests quite quickly quickly. And the more the bread is white, the more it is um, without the, the bran in it, the quicker it digests. So it, and, and, and when it's broken down, it's digested like sugar. It becomes sugar. It, it turns into molecules of glucose. So it's the same as eating uh, sugar, basically. And it absorbs very quickly and it floods your bloodstream with high levels of sugar and will cause high levels of insulin and pro-inflammatory environment in your body. That is why every time you eat anything made out of flour, whether it's pasta or whether it's pizza or whether it's bread or anything else made out of flour, it's essential to have it with a large amount of butter or cream or creamy cheese, high-fat cheese uh, or any other fat, pork fat and uh, goose fat and duck fat or any other fat. Very, very important. That is why every time we eat grains, if we eat um, buckwheat or we eat um, porridge, porridge needs to be always uh, mixed with large amount of butter in order to make sure that the blood sugar stays stable in the person And the same with potatoes because they're starchy to eat them with large amount of butter or any other animal fat
0: And uh, with the porridge would you recommend that people should soak it uh, overnight to reduce the phytic acid content?
1: Absolutely all grains generally speaking are very hard to digest. From vast majority of people, very hard to digest. Grains contain a large amount of so called anti nutrients. These are chemicals which damage the gut lining and damage collagen in the body, causing arthritis and causing other problems with uh, collagen, collagen disorders. And um, they also contain substances called fetats, which bind minerals in the gut and remove them from your body, they can cause mineral deficiencies. You know, you have to understand that grain is the seed of the plant, of the grasses. It's it's the babies of the grasses. The grasses don't want their babies to be eaten. They want them to grow, to procreate. That is why they pack their babies with all sorts of substances, which would damage the digestive system and the rest of the body of an animal that eats it. And human digestive system is particularly poorly equipped for digesting grains, very poorly. We're not herbivorous animals. We have got herbivorous animals have several stomachs called rumen, full of bacteria. And it's that bacteria that digest the grains and the grasses and other plant matter for those herbivorous animals. So it's not the cow that digests the grass, it's the bacteria in her rumen that break it down for her. And the interesting thing is that more than 70% of all the carbohydrate in the grass is converted into short-chain fatty acids, which are very saturated fat. So, a cow and sheep and other herbivorous animals are actually on a very high-fat diet, because it's bacteria in their rumen that digest the grasses for them. We don't have a rumen; we have got a small stomach, and our stomach, uh, if it's healthy, doesn't have virtually has no bacteria in it, and it produces hydrochloric acid and pepsin. And these two substances are only fit to properly digest and properly break down meat, fish, eggs, and milk. And these are the major sources of nutrition, building nutrients for the human body. These are the building, feeding foods. These are the foods that would build your muscle and build your bones and build your brain and build your immune system and the rest of the body. Plant matter, generally for the human beings, for the human digestive system, is indigestible particularly in a raw state. Plants for the humans are cleansers. They provide us with antioxidants, with vitamin C, with their juices, with phytonutrients, and other substances which help us to stay clean on the inside. They mop up free radicals, they mop up toxins, and other sort of things. But largely plants are indigestible for the human being. So in terms of feeding us, plants are are rather useless for the human body. They're not feeding foods, they're cleansing foods. People in traditional cultures knew this fact. Through trial and error, through experience, they've learned that plants are are, are no good at at feeding you properly. And when there is a shortage of animal food, um, they would eat plants and they developed various methods of preparing plants to make them a little bit more digestible for the human being, a little bit more feeding than they are in their natural state. And the major way that people treated food, plant matter, in order to make it more digestible and more nourishing for them, um, to allow their digestive systems to extract more nutrition out of those plants, is fermentation. Fermentation was a major, major way. And many traditional cultures, if you look at them in Africa or um, South America or Polynesia, they wouldn't dream of having any grain without fermenting it first. They would ferment it for a week, two weeks grain first. And the fermentation process is when we add bacteria or we use the bacteria that naturally live on the grain. So we're basically trying to repeat the process that is happening in the cow's stomachs, in the rumen, of the herbivorous animals, where bacteria break down all this plant matter. But we do it outside our bodies. We have a big pot and we put all this grain in there. We fill it up with water. Sometimes people add a bit of whey or homemade yogurt or homemade kefir into it. Or if they don't have uh, anything like that, they just leave it in a warm place because the bacteria that naturally live on organic grain are uh, lactobacillus plantarum, and they will ferment it for you. And just leave it for two, three weeks, sometimes for a month to ferment. And then they would cook it as a gruel when it's fermented, when it's broken down. Because the bacteria, the bacterial action on grains predigests the grain, breaks it apart, releases nutrients from it, And that becomes far more digestible for the human digestive system and we can extract much more out of it. So people, when they used to have their porridge centuries ago, they would always soak it at least overnight, sometimes for a few days. And they would soak it in milk or they would soak it in sour milk, in whey or homemade yogurt to pre-digest the grain. And then they will cook it and they will never have sugar with it. They will have honey with it and they will have a large amount of butter or cream or high cream milk with it to make it if they had it obviously if if it was available because people always knew that the real feeding comes from animal foods and this is where we come to vegetarianism this is another mainstream propaganda that is being pushed onto the population that vegetarianism is healthy vegetarian cultures, traditional vegetarian cultures around the world such as the ones that live in India they uh, live on plant matter out of necessity, not because they've chosen so. And whatever animal foods they can get their hands on, they prize and they love and they savor every little bit of it. Why do you think a cow is a, is a, um, a holy animal in in India? You can be prosecuted and put into prison for hurting a cow. That is a sacred animal in India because Indians knew for centuries that cow provides them with something that without which they will perish, milk, ghee, butter, cheese. And they put as much as they can into every curry, into every rice dish that they consume, vegetables. They would cook with large amounts of ghee and without cheese to it and then yogurt. And they also have chickens um, in, in India. In traditional society, they always had chickens. So they would use a large amount of eggs, whatever eggs they have. On a daily basis, they would add to their rice dishes and their curries and their vegetables. And it's the eggs and the milk that provided them with with, with the feeding, building foods to maintain their bodily structure, to maintain their brains, to maintain their muscles, to maintain their bones, to maintain the cellular structure in their body. Plant matter is purely cleansing. When we cook grains, when we ferment grains, yes, they become a bit more digestible, they provide a little bit more nutrition for us to use. The same with vegetables. When we cook vegetables, they become more of a building food rather than a cleansing. Their cleansing ability is reduced quite seriously when we cook them, but they become more digestible, so we absorb more of them, and they they feed us a little bit more. The same with fruit. But if we have plant matter in the natural state, we can't digest it.
0: I'd like to ask you about the acid-alkali pH balance in the body because uh, those people who support, say, the raw vegetarian diet or the vegetarian diet in general would say, well, it's a good thing because it makes your body alkaline and that a high animal fat, high animal produce diet is a bad thing because it makes the body very acid. How would you respond to that?
1: That's another dogma which is pervading in the nutritional circles in particular, that, that we all have to be alkaline all the time. Not at all. The homeostasis in the human body is extremely complex. Our body is constantly maintaining it. And there are so many different points to maintain. The blood sugar level has to be maintained. The electrolyte balance has to be maintained. The balance between sympathetic parasympathetic system has to be maintained. There are lots of checks and balances that are all being maintained. And depending on what state your body is in at the moment and what you're doing, whether you're resting or you're under a lot of stress, you're doing something, whether you're physically active or physically inactive, whether you're ill or healthy, whether the sun is shining and it's a summer or whether it's a cold, freezing day, uh, depending on, on, on all those factors, your metabolism in the body will change. And depending on your metabolism... A piece of meat can make you alkaline and an apple can make you acid. Another myth is that we all have to be alkaline all the time. That's not true at all. There are situations in our metabolism where the body has to be more acid. And there are situations when we need to be more alkaline. And only your body knows at which moment what balance is correct for you. We can never, ever uh, replicate that. What I find when people overdo on alkalizing food, when they have too much, Viruses wake up in the body. They get an outburst of uh, outbreak of herpes virus or um, Epstein-Barr virus or, or some other viral infection. They become prone to infections. But when people overdo on so-called acidifying foods in their body, yeast uh, uh, raises its ugly head. It becomes more active in, in people. And majority of people have both because we all have dormant viruses in our bodies. We acquire them in the first few, few years of life. That's normal. And we all have yeast in our bodies and and other um, inhabitants. And uh, only your body knows what the right balance is according to what's the weather doing, how's your uh, activity at the moment. In women, menstrual cycle is very, very important because women are cyclical creatures. Every month we go through a cycle. And your body should be more acid or more alkaline or what your electrolyte balance is supposed to be or what your Nervous system balance is supposed to be sympathetic, parasympathetic, and and so on. We can never second-guess it, and we cannot possibly uh, try and force the body to be more alkaline or more acid or anything like that. So just trust your body. And uh, in order for us to know what foods are appropriate on any particular day for the body to consume, the body gave us senses. It gave us a sense of smell and a sense of taste and a desire for food and satisfaction from food. And if we listen to those senses, then we cannot go wrong. Because, make no mistake, your body, inner intelligence, knows composition of all foods on this planet. It knows. And every metabolic state that the body's in at the moment, whatever it's doing in there at the moment, um, it might be repairing something, it might be giving birth to lots of cells, or it might be doing something else um, in your body. Your body knows what kind of nutrition it needs to receive right now to feed that metabolic state, to maintain it, to keep you healthy and in balance. And how is your body going to let you know that I need so much B12 right now, so much protein, so much zinc, so much vitamin C, so much fat, so much carbohydrate? And even if the body had a way of giving you all this information, how are you going to go about to fulfill that kind of composition of nutrients to feed your metabolic state? Well, Mother Nature is kind. It, it doesn't ask us to do anything so complicated. It gave us senses. It gave us desire for food, the sense of smell and sense of taste and sense of satisfaction. So every time you, have, you feel hungry and you have a moment to eat, ask yourself a simple question. What would I love to eat right now? What would I kill for right now? The answer will pop into your head immediately. And that is the right food for you to eat right now. And that food will smell divine to you and taste wonderful. And when you've eaten it, you will feel satisfied. Because you've spoken to your body, you've listened to your body intelligence, and you respected it. You gave your body exactly what your body needed at that moment. A couple of hours later, your metabolic state will change. And the food that was wonderful two hours ago will, will feel repulsive. You would want something completely different because your metabolic state has changed and your body needs a different set of nutrients at that moment and a different kind of foods has to fit the bill. So listen to your body and listen to your senses and you will not go wrong.
0: Well, fantastic. Thank you so much, Natasha. It's been splendid uh, hearing you and uh, I think many people will be uh, hugely pleased uh, to hear uh, the news that you've just explained and I'd like to say that uh, N- Natasha's book she has others but GAPS the gut and psychology syndrome is uh, commonly available and uh, a, a very interesting and easy read and very very uh, important for everybody but particularly those people uh, who themselves or have family members suffering from any uh, mental instability of any type and uh, so uh, we'll be back next week with another equally amazing program. And I would like to say thank you so much to Dr. Natasha Campbell-McBride. And uh, you, you have a, a website, uh, Natasha, that uh, people can go and see. Yes. Uh, perhaps you can... I have a
1: website which is called gaps.me. G-A-P-S, Gut and Psychology Syndrome, gaps.me, like myself, M-E. And I also have a blog which is called doctor-natasha.com. Doctor is a a full word. Uh, Apart from GAP's uh, book, The Gut and Psychology Syndrome book, I have a a book on heart disease. So any of you who are particularly interested in studying this subject, it's called Put Your Heart in Your Mouth. It is fully referenced. So if your doctor is interested, you can give your doctor this book. And uh, there is all the scientific literature back all the information that's in the book, um, but the book is written in an um, easy language to understand for uh, people who are not scientific, are well, not interested in that side.
0: Excellent. Thank you very much. And I think it's a very important point to buy books for your doctor so that your doctor can be educated. Very important. So uh, thank you all for viewing, and we'll look forward to seeing you next week. Thank you to UK Column for hosting the studio facilities here. Thanks to Mike and Brian, and we look forward to seeing you again next week. Cheerio.